Section 2 of The Strange Visitation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. The Strange Visitation by Marie Corelli. Section 2. McNason looked up with peering eyes that narrowed at the corners like those of a snake. Willie Dove, he echoed slowly. Hmm, hmm, let me see. Who is Willie Dove? Surely you remember him, replied Pitt quickly with a touch of warmth in his tone. Twenty-five years ago he was one of the smartest travelers in your employ. Was he? And McNason smiled blandly, but indifferently. Why, yes, of course he was. And Mr. Pitt's voice grew still warmer with feeling as he spoke. Surely, Mr. McNason, you can't have altogether forgotten him. He made immense business for the firm. Immense! A wonderfully active and energetic man, never lost time or opportunity, and brought us no end of valuable custom. Quite right of him, interpolated McNason. He did his duty, no doubt, and was paid for doing it. Well? Mr. Pitt played absently with his watch-chain. He was conscious that a check had been summarily put on any eloquent dissertation he might have been disposed to make concerning the past abilities and qualifications of Willie Dove. I thought, I fancied you might perhaps be interested, he murmured. Twenty-five years is a long time, Pitt, said McNason slowly. A very long time. It is a quarter of a century. One's interest in any man is apt to exhaust itself, naturally, in such a period. Mr. Pitt looked up quickly and then looked down. There was something in the hard, furrowed countenance of Josiah that suggested a mental dry heat or dry cold, any force, in fact, that may be known to absorb or disperse particles of generous sentiment. Yet Pitt was not a coward, and though he stood in wholesome awe of the captious moods and whims of the great millionaire upon whom his own existence and that of his family depended, he determined not to relinquish the errand on which he was bound without a struggle. "'Well, sir,' he resumed, in accents rendered firm by a kind of inward desperation, "'whether you are interested or not, I think it my duty to tell you that Willie Dove—' the man who, through his energy, fidelity, and tact, helped to establish the firm, is now lying seriously ill. He is nearly sixty years old, and, having a large family to provide for, had been unable to put by anything for his own rainy day. "'He should not have had a large family,' interpolated McNason, stretching out his lean, ill-shaped legs more comfortably in front of the fire. "'It's quite his own fault.' Perhaps, proceeded Pitt with considerable emphasis, if he had been less honest and high-principled in his business connection with us, he might have been more well-to-do in his own affairs. But as matters stand, his position is a sad one. He is afflicted with a painful disease, which, however, can be absolutely cured by an immediate surgical operation. The doctors assure him that he will be well and strong enough to live out his full measure of years, comfortably and usefully, 
if he will only submit to their treatment. "'Well, if he wants to live, why doesn't he?' inquired McNason lazily. "'Simply because he can't afford it,' replied Pitt bluntly. The great millionaire took up a poker, and looking critically at the fire, broke a large gaseous lump of coal into a bright blaze. "'Oh, well, that settles it,' he said. "'Then I suppose he must, as the common folk say, go home.' A sparkle of indignation lightened Mr. Pitt's quiet gray eyes, but he restrained his feelings. "'The operation fee would be a hundred guineas.' He went on in a calm, business-like tone. Good nursing and a change of air would perhaps run into a hundred more, say two hundred pounds. That sum would save his life. "'I dare say,' and McNason's thin lips widened into a grin. "'But if he hasn't got the two hundred, he must accept the inevitable. After all, when a man is nearly sixty, a few years more or less in the world doesn't matter.' Mr. Pitt looked at his employer steadily. "'Have you any cause of complaint or offence against Dove, sir?' McNason met his inquiring eyes with his own special gimlet glance, sharp as the point of a screw. "'None. Not the least in the world. Why should I? I scarcely remember the man.' "'Well, if you have nothing against him, would you not perhaps be inclined to help him?' The claims of your business are, I know, enormous, and it is, of course, easy to forget the names and identities of the various persons who have all done their little best to build up the firm. But Dove's is really an exceptional case. He was always liked and respected at the works. Many of the men there know him well and speak most highly of him, and I can add my own testimony to that of the others. It seems a pity to let so faithful a servant of the firm die." for want of a little first aid. "'Did he send you to beg of me?' asked McNason with a kind of vicious abruptness. Mr. Pitt's pale face flushed a little. "'Certainly not, Mr. McNason. Willie Dove would never beg of any man. He merely told me his case and said, "'Perhaps Mr. McNason would lend me the money. I would work it all back. And to speak the truth, I really thought—' "'Yes, sir, I really thought you would be glad to lend it, even to give it. Two hundred pounds is no more to you than two hundred pence would be to me. "'But supposing you make it a loan and have any doubts as to the dove's ability or willingness to pay it back, "'I myself will be security for him. "'I would advance him the money if I had it to spare. "'But unfortunately I am rather pressed for cash just now. "'I also have a large family.' McNason smiled a smile resembling the death-grin of the fabulous dragon of St. George. "'A mistake, Pitt, quite a mistake. Large families merely make the world more difficult to live in, and money scarcer to get. Money needs to be kept in close quarters. Close, very close quarters. It has a habit of running away unless it is imprisoned, Pitt. It runs away much faster than it runs in. Governments know that.' and kings, and when governments and kings find it slipping through their fingers, they come to me, to me, Josiah McNason, and I tell you what it is, Pitt, 
I've enough to do with lending money to big persons and taking securities on big things without bothering myself concerning little commercials. See, I lend to royalties, titles, and magnificences of all classes and all nations, and I've done so much lately in this line that I'm short of money myself just now. Pitt, <laughs> I'm short of money. Mr. Pitt stared and was for a moment speechless. He had often thought, taking shame to himself for indulging in such a reflection, that Mr. McNason was certainly a very ugly man, but he had never seen him look uglier than at the present moment. Such a mouthing, wrinkled mask of a face, as the firelight now flashed upon, was surely not often seen among living humanity. Even the grey-white goatee beard that adorned Josiah's sharp chin wagged up and down with its possessor's silent mirth, in a fashion which made its expression abnormally atrocious. "'I'm short of money,' repeated the millionaire, rubbing his hands pleasantly together. "'I don't mind lending this Willie Dove five pounds. As you say, he served the firm well a quarter of a century ago. But two hundred! Now, Mr. Pitt, you're a sensible man, a man of business.' And you know that to ask such a sum on loan for a decayed and diseased commercial traveller is absurd. He would never be able to work it back, as he says. And as for your being his security, I have too much respect for you to allow you to put yourself into such an awkward position. You'd regret it. You really would, Pitt. Besides... Why not let Dove go to one of the hospitals and take his chance among the young students and general cutters-up of bodies, eh? They'd charge him very little, perhaps nothing, especially if they found his disease complex enough for good practice. Mr. Pitt gave an unconscious gesture of physical repulsion. Mrs. Dove has a nervous horror of her husband's being separated from her. He said slowly, She says that if he is taken away to a hospital, she feels sure he will never come back. Then again, she has great faith in the doctor who has been attending Dove for the past six months, and he strongly recommends a private operation. Of course, he wants to put the money into his own pocket, said McNason calmly. Well, I can't be of any assistance in this business. So if that's all you came about, you may consider that you have done your duty, and that the interview is finished. Good night, Mr. Pitt. But Pitt still hesitated. It is Christmas Eve, sir, he began faltering. It is. I have been reminded of that fact several times today. What of it? Nothing, sir, except... except that... It is a time of year when everyone tries to do some little kindness to his neighbor, and when we all endeavor to help the poor and sick according to our means, and, and when some of us who are getting old may look back on our past lives and remember the ones we have loved who are no longer here. When even you, sir, you might perhaps think of your only son who is gone, the son of the firm, as we used to call him. Willie Dove carried the child many times on his shoulder round the works, to see the engines in full swing. And he was very fond of Willie, and, er, and, as I say, sir, you might perhaps, for the dead boy's sake, 
do a good turn. He paused. The millionaire had half risen from his chair and was gripping its cushioned elbows hard with both hands. How, how dare you? He muttered in choked accents. How dare you use the memory of my dead son to urge a, a beggar's plea? Why do you presume to probe an old grief, a cureless sorrow, in an attempt to get money out of me? Because it is Christmas Eve. Curse Christmas Eve! And his voice sank into a hiss of rage, and Mr. Pitt, nervously shrinking within himself, sought for his hat and made towards the door. A terrific gust of rain just then swept against the windows like a shower of small stones, accompanied by the shrieking yowl of the wind. "'Christmas Eve!' repeated McNason, fixing his eyes with cold derision on his abashed overseer. "'Peace and goodwill! That sounds like it, doesn't it?' And he shook one hand with a mocking gesture towards the rattling casements. "'Hear the storm? Any angels singing in it, do you think?' any god about bah christmas is a vulgar superstition born of barbarous idolatry it serves nowadays as a mere excuse for the lower classes to gorge themselves with food get drunk and generally make beasts of themselves there is no more peace and goodwill in it than there is in a public-house beer fight and as for doing kindness to each other I'll be bound there's not a man at my works who isn't trying to get a bigger round of beef or a fatter goose for himself than his neighbor can afford. That's charity. It begins at home. You know that, Mr. Pitt. <laughs> you know that. You have a large family. Christmas is a humbug, like most religious festivals. And here he stretched his thin mouth into that unbecoming slit which suggested smiling but was nothing like a smile. I never keep it, and I do my best to forget it. Good night. Good night, sir. And Mr. Pitt, hat in hand, stood for a moment facing his employer. I am sorry if I have troubled you or, or offended you. I did not mean to do so. I hope you will excuse my boldness. I made a mistake. I thought you might be pleased to do something for an old servant of the firm— I, I, eh, uh, good night. End of section two. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.